0: Welcome to a special episode of the podcast. If you are new to the podcast and want to listen to my commentary on Matthew, this is not it. For that, you will need to scroll to episode one and start there. This episode is a sermon that I gave at Pasadena Mennonite Church on September 17th, 2023. Now, the pace at which I deliver the sermon is, to my ear, rather fast, so take that into consideration. If your podcast app has that feature that speeds up or slows down the track, and I think most podcast apps have that feature, you might want to consider putting this one on slow. On the other hand, I've heard several people say that they always listen to podcasts speeded up, including mine. In that case, maybe normal speed might be good if you normally play them speeded up. Or maybe the speed of my delivery is a non-issue for anyone but me. It's just that to my ear, it sounds a little fast. I don't know, but that's something to consider. Anyway, I read three texts in this sermon, but I don't cite the chapter and verse numbers out loud because when I delivered the sermon, I was using a PowerPoint presentation, and the people who were there in person or on Zoom saw the texts with chapter and verse on the slides. After hearing the recording, I realize that the readings sound rather abrupt when you don't see them on the slides. So I just want to acknowledge that ahead of time and give you the citations up front. The gospel passages that I read from in the sermon are Matthew 12:46 to 50, Mark 10:29 to 30, and Matthew 6:19 to 21. So with that, I hope you enjoy and are inspired by the sermon. So it's Peace Sunday in the Mennonite Church and here at PMC. I've been a member of PMC since 1996. In yeah, long time. In fact, I did my Fuller Seminary pastoral internship here back then, and then after that so served as a, an associate pastor here for seven years. Uh, now I'm what's called a ministry associate, uh, and I serve PMC by not being here most of the time. <laughs> um, so uh, my involvement here at PMC began back in 1996. During that time, I've seen PMC act for peace in many ways. I remember back in the late 90s when PMCers were going out to the Nevada test site, a bombing range for the U.S. military, and they were being arrested in acts of civil disobedience, protesting U.S. militarism. Over the years, some of us went to Palestine and Iraq and South Dakota with Christian peacemaker teams to wage peace through human shield actions and human rights monitoring and reporting. For 16 years, we did the Palm Sunday Peace Parade, marching with other congregations here in Pasadena to proclaim the inbreaking of God's reign of peace and justice in the world. We've also had people go out from us and start peace centers in other countries. Uh, Paulo Wajaya went back to his home country of Indonesia and started a peace center there. Abel Dalji went back to his home country of, of Nigeria and he started a peace center there. And also, Sue, her is now who's currently a part of our congregation. I think Sue's in the in the um, nursery right now, but she and her husband um, Hyun uh, started reconciliation and are working for peace on the Korean Peninsula. They go back and forth there a lot, especially Hyun, um, exposing U.S. militarism there. Um, And Frank Schofield, who's part of our congregation now, he works for peace in Guatemala. He's usually here, but he recently went went there for a conference. Um, and that's his home country, another place with the history of U.S. military intervention. We used to send groups to Guatemala. Uh, mostly they were part of a Fuller Seminary group, but Ann Nolte was one of the leaders of that group. We did send one group, a, a PMC group to Guatemala, I think through Mennonite Central Committee. And that group was briefly taken captive by an indigenous tribe there who thought they were uh, working for an oil company, thought they were prospecting for oil. Um, So there's a whole story that can be told there by those who went. I wasn't one of them. So you have to ask, was anybody part of that group that's here today? Okay. Oh, you were, Ty. So ask Ty about that. He can tell you all about that. Uh, You had to stand trial there for a few hours, right? Yeah. With that, yeah. But they let you go. They figured out you were innocent. Good. Um, Speaking of Guatemala, I was overjoyed to hear uh, last month of the election of Bernardo Arevalo. I'm not the only one. Great. Um, Arevalo is now the president-elect of Guatemala. He is the son of the first democratically elected president of Guatemala, Juan José Arevalo, who was elected back in 1945. Uh, Juan José Arevalo was elected after after a successful revolution that overthrew a U.S.-backed dictatorship. Unfortunately, Guatemala only got to have two democratically elected presidents before the U.S. came back and overthrew the second one. Uh, Jacobo Arbenz in 1954. It was a CIA-engineered coup on behalf of the United Fruit Company, which is now known as Chiquita Banana. Uh, by the way, fun fact, the U.S. government garnered popular support among the American people for the Guatemalan coup with the help of Sigmund Freud's nephew, Edward Bernays, who invented the modern uh, science of public relations. If you want to read more about that, you can just Google Edward Bernays, Sigmund Freud, Guatemala, Public Relations, and you can read all about that. That CIA coup in 1954 resulted in a long string of right-wing authoritarian governments backed by the United States, which ruled through harsh repression, including lots of executions and disappearances of political opponents, as well as torture and a genocide of the Mayan indigenous people in almost 40 years of civil war. And that's why refugees from Guatemala began coming to the U.S., and unfortunately, the refugee streams from other Central American countries have similar origin stories. But now Bernardo Arevalo, the, first, the son of the first democratically elected gov- uh, president of Guatemala and the first center-left president since Arbenz in the early 1950s, has been elected president. Let's pray that he's able to take office in January because there are many forces that are trying to keep that from happening. Many Guatemalan and other Central American refugees are still among us. So another thing we've done at PMC is to take in refugees and work for refugee rights and immigration reform. Over 15 years ago, PMCers in the urban village community, especially Ann and Bob Nolte, got deeply involved in the new sanctuary movement. We formed a sanctuary cluster with some other local congregations and gave sanctuary to a man from Guatemala uh, and used his and other refugee cases to bring attention to the plight of undocumented refugees fleeing violence stemming from U.S. militarism in those countries. Later, some of us began taking in refugees from Honduras. Taking in refugees and working for their rights in resettlement, or as the Bible puts it, welcoming the stranger, is not only an act of hospitality, it is in our case an act of reparations, an act of justice, and a sign of opposition to the powers of war and oppression. Wars proceed from lust for power, struggle over resources and dehumanizing other people all of these might come under the banner of nationalism which divides us up into nations that compete for power and resources and allows us to devalue other nations and other peoples and their needs and this is why Mennonites oppose nationalism which brings us to our passage for today while he was still speaking to the crowds His mother and his brothers were standing outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. But to the one who had told him this, Jesus replied, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. In this passage, Jesus redefines the family. Redefining the family or the household is part of a wider gospel theme. In this case, Jesus redefines the family as whoever does God's will, as opposed to whoever happens to be born into the household. Redefining the household is a common gospel theme with major political significance because the household in the first century was the basic political, economic, and social unit. Societies were constructed through households and nations were often referred to as households. Israel was known as the House of Jacob, and the Roman Empire was also constructed in a pyramid of patriarchal households and a hierarchy that rose all the way up to the emperor, who was conceived of as the Grand Patriarch of the Empire. The empire was his household. And although the whole empire was Caesar's household, the actual subjects of the empire had severely different statuses within it. Most subjects did not have actual citizenship in the empire. Some were slaves, and most were desperately poor with hunger and starvation widespread. Most subjects of the empire were not really included in its household. So when Jesus redefines who is part of the family or the household, he is redefining society. He is redefining the body politic. This theme of inclusion and exclusion is one of the through lines of the gospel. At the very beginning of the New Testament, in the very first passage, there's a genealogy. It's the genealogy of Jesus, and it includes Gentiles and even enemies of Israel or people from enemy nations. And then in chapter three, John the Baptist says that God can raise up children for Abraham from stones, meaning that birth or lineage does not decide who is in or who is out of God's new society, which he and Jesus call the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Then we have Jesus hanging out with sinners and tax collectors, social outcasts. He heals a Gentile enemy, a centurion, who he then says has greater faith than anyone in Israel. He concedes a debate to a Gentile woman from a nation hostile to Jews who convinces him to include her in his family. Jesus constantly debates opponents in the gospel, and he always wins except in this case with this Gentile woman. This is the only time he concedes a debate. This theme of inclusion of enemies and outcasts pervades the gospel story. And of course, this is not just a religious matter about who might be included or excluded from the religious congregation. Rather, it is about who will be included or excluded in society from the body politic. It is a social and political matter. It is, as Martin Luther King would later say, about building the beloved community, or as anarchists would later say, building a new society in the shell of the old, a new society where everyone is taken care of. So Jesus said, truly, there is no one, I tell you, there is no one who has, who has, who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the good news who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age houses brothers and sisters, mothers and children in fields with persecution and in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus here clearly speaks about a new society in this age, in which land and houses are held in common, where we recognize everyone as family, as brothers and sisters struggling together to build a house of love and compassion. Jesus said, do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust consume, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust consumes and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, normally we think of this teaching as being about inner piety. So we don't focus on earthly wealth, but instead we focus on some amorphous spiritual treasure, perhaps building up our inner spiritual life. But if we trace the idea of heavenly treasure through the ancient literature of the time, we find that it has a more specific thing that it's referring to. An ancient rabbinic source reads, My ancestors stored up treasures for this lower world, but I, through giving to the poor, have stored up treasures for the heavenly world above. So you can see that storing up treasures here means giving to those in need. If I had more time, we could run through more ancient texts that show the same thing. It's not always stated in terms of giving to the poor, but often to neighbors, sometimes referring to them as siblings, brothers and sisters, anyone in need in the community, so that they will take care of us in our time of need. In other words, storing up treasure in heaven is to create a community of solidarity, This is about mutual aid. That is the heavenly treasure. Mutual aid, community solidarity. So a big part of our work is to create a society of inclusion and solidarity where everyone, especially enemies and social outcasts, sinners and tax collectors, are included and taken care of. We have a long way to go. But when we organize and advocate for housing and land justice, we take a significant step toward creating this new society. So recently, we have been advocating to change the zoning for land belonging to religious congregations and nonprofit colleges so that it can be used for affordable housing. The current bill in California is SB 4, Senate Bill 4. There are a lot of churches that want to use their land for affordable housing, but most of them do not have the right zoning. Zoning is one of the greatest barriers, historically, to housing justice in the United States. One of the greatest barriers to moving toward a society where everyone has a home. Single-family zoning covers 70% of most U.S. cities, including Pasadena and Los Angeles, and most of the cities in uh, Los Angeles County. Single-family zoning began in 1916 in Berkeley, of all places, Um, As part of a larger strategy to keep people of color, including Jews, out of a white neighborhood. That's how it began. White supremacists and other municipalities took note and it spread like wildfire across the nation as a segregationist strategy. Now, this is not to make anyone feel bad about living in a single family home. I recognize that most of us currently or have lived in single family homes. I've lived in single family homes most of my life. And I'm not so much talking about single-family homes per se or even just single-family neighborhoods, but single-family zoning, zoning which prevents the building of multifamily housing in certain neighborhoods. There are times when single-family homes make sense, but single-family zoning, which covers 70% of most American cities, is a structure of segregation. Today, it continues to divide by economic class because anyone who can't afford a single family home cannot buy in those neighborhoods. And so because of the racial wealth gap, single family zoning continues to perpetuate racial segregation as well. Single family zoning also perpetuates car dependence, since public transit is usually not viable in such neighborhoods, and it's hard for most people in those neighborhoods to walk or bike where they need to go, so people drive cars, which puts more particulates and CO2 in the air. Furthermore, studies show that low-density neighborhoods don't support themselves. The extensive infrastructure needed to support such low-density neighborhoods is not supported by the taxes that they pay. So these neighborhoods are subsidized by denser, sometimes poorer neighborhoods. So poorer, high-density neighborhoods often subsidize low-density, single-family neighborhoods. And to make matters worse, single-family zoning drives up the cost of housing by restricting the supply of housing. If multifamily housing cannot be built in 70% of the city, then it's hard to build for growing populations. And the simple law of supply and demand kicks in, which drives up the cost of housing. Some experts believe that single-family zoning may be the primary driver of high housing costs today. So this suburban sprawl then divides us by class and race, it pollutes our air, it encroaches on natural habitat and drives up housing costs. Changing zoning where we can is a matter of justice and it is an urgent one. SB4 will do that by changing zoning for religious congregations and nonprofit colleges so that the land can be used for affordable housing, multifamily affordable housing. We've been working at this for three years. And the good news is that it just passed the California Assembly. So it passed the Senate in the spring. Now it has passed the Assembly. We're just waiting for the governor to sign it. In fact, if you can give him a call, that wouldn't be a bad idea. We're pretty sure he will sign it, but a little bit nudging won't hurt. Uh, But we should have a new law changing zoning so that multifamily affordable housing can be built across California on religious and college land in January. So this will help slow the rising cost of housing, and it will help integrate our neighborhoods. By integrating neighborhoods, we are taking a significant step in restructuring our society, restructuring and and rebuilding our house, so that our neighbors, our brothers and sisters, are those who were formerly alien to us, from whom we were were separated by constructs of race, class, and nationality. And perhaps a truly integrated society will be less likely to wage war against other nations because the nations are in our house and we are in theirs. And we are all one humanity under God with liberty and justice for everyone.